Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This edition of Soundcheck is from our archives and features Rhiannon Giddens. We've chosen this one for you today because Rhiannon has been much in the news lately, primarily because of her opera, Omar, an account of a slave narrative written in Arabic by Omar ibn Said, who was sold into slavery here in the United States and told his tale. In addition, since we recorded this session, Rhiannon Giddens has been named the artistic director of the Silk Road Ensemble and will be taking that ensemble on tour this summer. And then next summer, she's been announced as the music director of the annual Ojai Music Festival in Southern California. So lots on her table these days. Let's get back to 2018 and this soundcheck performance that she did with Dirk Powell. March down Freedom Highway Oh yeah, marching each and every day This is the Soundcheck Podcast. From NewSounds.org, I'm John Schaefer. The Grammy and MacArthur Award-winning Rhiannon Giddens covers a lot of musical territory. African-American string band music, protest songs, Irish folk music, American folk music. On her latest album, Freedom Highway, there are three songs that she co-wrote with Dirk Powell, who also sings and plays in several styles, including Appalachian and Cajun music. The two of them have joined us here in the studio today to play some music for us, beginning with an old tune called Gonna Write Me a Letter. Here's Rhiannon Giddens and Dirk Powell live. Oh, 
watched him sail away on the phone. Now he's left me here, broken hearted, broken hearted and alone. He's gone, he's gone, he's gone. Write Me a Letter is the name of the song. Rhiannon Giddens singing and playing the banjo and Dirk Powell singing and playing the fiddle. But don't hold them to that. They'll be switching off instruments throughout the set. Um, Rhiannon, that's uh, Ola Bell Reed made mm-hmm. that song famous, right? Yeah, North Carolina. There is uh, there's something very poetic about the persistent use of the foam. Yes. Instead of like the sea or the ocean, yeah. you know? I mean, you think of these old songs and you think they're kind of rudely constructed, you know, roughly hewn, but there's a lot of there's a lot of meat to pick off of those bones. Oh, always, you know. I mean, especially the ones that make it down through the years. I mean, the ones that resonate, that's what people use the terms that resonate with them. Yeah. Now, the two of you are veteran collaborators. How did this collaboration come together? Well, I'd say we first started working together back in 2007, 2008, just briefly, and then there was a long period when we weren't connected. And at the Cambridge Folk Festival, I guess two and a half years ago, we started jamming and playing some music and and sort of reigniting some of that musical connection that we'd felt at various times. And that developed into just a lot of songwriting, collaborating in the studio, performing, and, you know, we feel a familial connection that's really strong and, and a way of creating that it's like a conversation that just somebody goes here, well, you go there, 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 and it's just a very natural and inspiring collaboration for sure. Yeah. Now, what's interesting in your answer, and only folks who were watching on Facebook would have seen it, was the way you brought your hands together and the fingers kind of intertwined because, you know, there's a lot of different musical threads that the two of you are working with, and it seems to be that the idea is that when they aren't connecting, they're at least interlocking and and forming something. I think that's absolutely right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I think a lot of these threads of American music, they're, they've been separated, but they really aren't, you know, the, and the roots really go back to something like what we just did, honestly. I mean, the banjo, particularly that kind of banjo and the fiddle, that right there is so much the root of so much American music, the banjo right. coming from Africa and the fiddle and, and all of it merging, so... Right, so you have the like the British Isles, the fiddle tradition, the the West African tradition represented by the banjo, and Rhiannon, when back in the uh, Carolina Chocolate Drops mm-hmm. days, when you guys won a Grammy for sort of introducing this kind of unheard branch of African American string band mm-hmm. music, um, I think one of the startling things for many listeners was just how, quote unquote. American, you know, it sounded of a piece with mm-hmm. this whole tapestry of American 
traditional music that that we were hearing. Well, you know, American music has been intertwined and has been a cultural collaborations ever since, you know, the introduction of Europeans and Africans on this continent. And it's far more than just the banjos from Africa and the fiddles from Europe, because you have, you know, the banjo being also adapted by European players. And then you also have African fiddle traditions coming over with African players, and right. that changes a lot what's going into it. So there's actually a lot of threads going into the mix, you know, all throughout the time. So let me ask you, uh, you know, and I'll ask you both this question. You grew up in the tradition. How much of this was kind of like intuitive, and how much kind of research have you had, you know, have you like delved into archives and gone to libraries and stuff like that? Well, I grew up listening to my grandfather play banjo and fiddle from Kentucky. So I was very lucky that way, but I also started playing classical piano when I was eight and fell in love with Bach. And you know, as a beginning musician in the classical world, some of the music that he wrote is such great music for beginning players. And you mm-hmm. know, I kind of fell in love with that. And when I was probably eleven or twelve, I started feeling that my grandfather's music was something that he just wanted to hand to me. And I realized that I had a connection to that that. I was so lucky to have. And I think I often say, you know, a lot of the things that happen in this country are tied to the fact that we say, well, you can be anybody you want to be, but a lot of young people don't know who they are. How do you take that journey if you're not stepping off of solid ground? You know, we it's all the opportunity and the change and the growth, but we cut our roots so frequently that I think we suffer. And so I felt early on really blessed to have those roots and to feel that connection to him. But I also felt a desire to to share that and with an intention of encouraging other people to to see what was rooted in, in their lives because I felt like as a teenager, you know, yeah, be anything you want to be, but who am I already yeah. to start? And, uh, probably worth pointing out that, you know, Bach, he wrote Alamans and Gavots and Saravans, the dances. Yeah. He, he was, you know, <laughs> he was basically, you know, recreating some of the popular dance forms of the day. So yeah. it's not like, you know, they're completely disconnected from each other. No, I think, in fact, a lot of traditions, and it happened in American music, it happened with when old-time music changed into bluegrass in a lot of ways, and other traditions, a lot of times when things get separate from dance, they change in ways that, uh, you know, not to say that it's not valuable, but I think the connection of music and dance is something that we've, yeah. we've sacrificed, and that's unfortunate yeah. sometimes. What about for you, Rhiannon? What was, you know, how much academic versus... You I know. mean, I, I came to all this, you know, as an adult. I mean, I grew up in the Piedmont, North Carolina, and I was surrounded by bluegrass music, and, you know, my uncle plays it, and my grandfather evidently played it. I never met him, but, you know, hearing blues and jazz on the other side and hearing pop music, and, mm-hmm. you know, I just kind of had a really eclectic musical upbringing, but I didn't play any instruments until I was an adult. And I went to school for opera, you know, went to college for vocal performance at Oberlin, and when I burned out... <laughs> <laughs> of that, I went home and found contra dance. And we were talking about the connection of dance, and that's how I got into folk music. And then when I discovered the history of the banjo, I was like, "That was it," you know. And I went to the Black Banjo Gathering, and you know, the Chocolate Drop started there. But you know, I I do a lot of research because um, I, I just I'm fascinated because I, I think that the music tells us so much about what was going on 
culturally. And so I always like to know historically what has been written, you know, because I feel like it enhances my understanding of the music that's there and then the music that's recently been coming out of me, you mm. know, to represent some of those time periods. So, yeah, I got a lot of books. Like my suitcase is usually half books. People are like, <laughs> why is this so heavy? And I'm like, oh, uh, never mind. <laughs> Well, so you both, in a funny way, came to this music through alamans of some sort, <laughs> contradances yeah. or, or yeah. Bach piano piece. Yeah. Um, uh, now, Dirk, the, the song you guys are going to play next, this is one of yours, right? Yes. Tell us the story behind uh, Say Playmate. Well, it's based on something my father would always tell me about an experience he had growing up in Kentucky as a young boy, where, like many people... Uh, you know, his best friend was of a different race. His best friend was African-American. They were really close. They did everything together. They were neighbors. And one day the adults told him, well, you can't be friends anymore. And it always struck me when he would tell me this story because he was still processing it like the maybe eight or nine-year-old child that he was when he received that information. I think when you something traumatic that you can't understand happens to you, a lot of times you kind of freeze at that point and even though you grow beyond and you understand it logically when you try to process it emotionally you go back to that point and seeing his face and the hurt on his face and the confusion always made a big impact on me and I wanted to write a song about that and I was inspired we started playing music together and the song just came to me one day basically him in the current day speaking to this friend of his that he wouldn't have seen in 70 years. Hmm. So it's an imagined reconnection. It's it's an imagined reconnection, him basically singing to that friend of his that he hasn't seen. And it's discussing their friendship as children and then him talking to him today. All right. Let's, uh, let's hear the piece. Uh, we're speaking with Dirk Powell and Rhiannon Giddens. They're playing live for us here in the studio today. Here's a song called Say Old Playmate, live on Soundcheck. children on your knee 
would not let us be or do you just tell them to stay away from boys like me Childish ways meant me and you to be cast aside forever. Did you crash there straight ahead? Did they have to drag you from your bed? Did you break down like I did when always? Change to never. Where are you now? Grandchildren on your knee. Do they know how they would not let us be? So they won't get hurt And they won't feel that fall Or do you tell them That love conquers all The song is called Say Old Playmate. Live performance here in our studio from Dirk Powell, voice and guitar, and uh, the fiddle this time, played by Rhiannon Giddens, backing vocals as well. And, you know, a song like that about um, racial differences and how that, that kind of thing can sort of persist through generations makes it all the more important, it seems, when people of different types are visible on the stages of whatever. I mean, we're talking about American traditional Americana music, I guess, right now, um, which was, again, Rhiannon, one of the important things of the Carolina Chocolate Drops, and you've been a very visible figure across the, the spectrum of, mm-hmm. of traditional American music now. Um, do you see that reflected in the audience for this music? No. That's an easy answer, unfortunately. I mean, uh, one of the biggest heartbreaks I think I've ever had was the biggest, like, it was 95% black audience. The only time I've ever had an all-black audience was at Sing Sing Prison. 
Uh. You know, that's my reality. And uh, it's hard. I mean, it's hard because of the way that African-American culture moves forward and doesn't really do a lot of looking back. I, and I see some of that changing. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I mean, there's just more people of color even playing these instruments and being interested in this music, and which is great. And I, there's always a component of African-Americans or people of color who come to the shows. I mean, there's always a few, you know, sometimes yeah. more, and but most of the time it is majority white. I mean, you could you say the same for jazz. You could say the same. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's just a, the nature of... American culture of black American culture it's something I would love to see change because I think there's a lot to be gained by looking back you know you know I always said of the chocolate drops we're like the first generation that didn't have I mean there's loads of stuff that still we need to fix like don't get me wrong but there's a there was a lot of us out there that didn't have to deal with Jim Crow that didn't have to deal with living through the civil rights movement we are the beneficiaries of what our parents and grandparents really push for and live through. And as we're still pushing, of course, but, you know, I didn't have to deal with any of that stuff growing up. So we had the luxury of looking back. And I think we need that because there's so much to be gained by looking at how we contributed to the culture of this country far beyond just like blues and hip hop. You know what I mean? It's And the the other thing that is kind of my soapbox is that it's not just what African-Americans contributed because that's huge, it's vast. I mean, it's even vaster than we know, but it's also the cultural interactions between working class blacks and whites in the South that really had a lot to do with where the music came from, you know? And that's something that we just don't like to talk about. We, you know, the people above, it benefits them to keep us at each other's throats and to keep, you know, the history from reaching us and going, well, there were every time we try to come together, you know yeah. that people like do this whereas you know in music is one of the most tangible products of that very cultural exchange but it's not taught that way and i think that that's a great disservice to to knowing our history so um when you started researching for example african american string band music did you find was there a period in the 20s or 30s in the south where you might have a string band that was mixed race i mean there were a few probably more than we know you know because in some areas it was almost cool in some areas it was like mm, mm. that's not gonna happen but there are very clear examples of, of mixed race string bands the georgia yellowhammer is the very first you know creole musician to record it with a white fiddler um i mean there are these you know from the 20s and 30s these instances there's there's documentation out there of this you know but you had at that time the music industry coming in and forcing categories where there weren't categories before and you you start having black bands being told what to play and white bands being told what to play you know whereas before mm-hmm. they shared a common repertoire that was all across the south sorry it's just like this is no. all very recent in my <laughs> brain so it just it infuriates me because you know the, the strength of american music is the very fact that it crossed all the genres yeah. you know is that you had people playing all this stuff and that's why it's worldwide so beloved because it has all of that mix of people recognize themselves in every piece of American music. So when you start forcing those categories apart and then they are start going down these narrow roads, that's when you lose what makes it great, I think. Yeah. And uh, Sorry. <laughs> of course, the terminology the industry used back in the 20s to do that separating was, here's the mainstream stuff and here's the race records. Mm-hmm. And race records weren't just black people, Cajuns, that was race music as well. And there, uh, Dirk, you're from the Appalachian tradition. You know, you're talking about your grandfather, Kentucky fiddler and singer. But, you know, you're, you're deeply into the Louisiana tradition, too. And that's, you can't extricate the white, the free people of color, the Native American. I mean, it's all in there, isn't yes. it? 
It really is, yeah. In Louisiana, the records going back to colonial times have interracial you know, bands and people playing music together across all those lines. And, of course, there's the events they were playing for were segregated often, you know. There's all that complicated history, and Louisiana has its own special melting pot of those things. But it's absolutely true. You cannot even begin to define one of those supposedly sort of separate cultures without referring to the other. The influence is so intertwined and uh, you know living there I've had experiences of extreme racism and experiences that are the complete opposite and you know it's one of those places where people triumph over a lot and that's one of the things they've triumphed over and yeah the the soul that comes out of that kind of triumph is beautiful yeah something that you don't want to step away from well, let, let me ask you, uh, the, the high lonesome sound, that Appalachian sound, you know, we think of, you know, Ralph Stanley, Roscoe Holcomb, you know, we think of older white guys. Is there some record of that tradition having been a mixed one at some point? Absolutely. I mean, in the mountains, uh, there were a lot of black musicians in the mountains, and I think working on the trains that came through and various things, and like Roscoe Holcomb and clearly learned from black musicians, you know, guitar and, and banjo and Again, we always look at we look at the past through today's lens as if these things existed as they do now, and so then we try to explain. But uh, I think the that mix was way stronger, hmm. you know. And uh, almost every musician of that tradition talks about a formative experience with African American musician when they were a child, yeah. from Bill Monroe and Tommy Gerald, and you know, it's very very clear. So you had a timing thing going on there, you know, the culture was a very mixed culture that went into the creation of the Appalachian sound and of not just in Appalachians, that music was everywhere. It just lasted in the Appalachians longer, you know? But the the creation of that sound, you had a mixed culture going into that. But at the time that it started being recorded, you had a couple of things happening. You had the Great Migration. You had a lot of blacks leaving the South, not because of what happened in the 1860s and 70s, but what was happening right then with the resurgence of the Ku Klux Klan and the the writing of a new race narrative of American history, which Henry Ford was very much into, and the creation of a white American culture, mm. which was you know basically erasing blacks from that history. So you have that happening, and so the blacks are leaving. They're being erased. They're not being allowed to do fiddle competitions, you know. So when it's stuff is starting to get recorded, that's what our our notion is of that area, even though that's not the case. You know, it's just that's how we remember it because we have had it kind of whitewashed by all these things that were happening. Right. So the the reality on the ground was different from the mediated reality yes. that we were given through records totally. and newspapers, radio, et cetera. Uh, we're speaking with and listening to Rhiannon Giddens and Dirk Powell. Um, Rhiannon, the next song kind of goes way past what we've been talking mm. about. Tell the story of, of how you came to write at the purchaser's option. Well, you talk about research and uh, what I do is I kind of immerse myself and then things start to bubble up, you know, and part of my, what I found my mission to be is to create a space for these voices, you know, traditionally black women haven't had much of a voice in the history of slavery and things that happened to them were pretty horrific, you know, kind of constantly across the board so I find that I read these things and they just want to be they want to be songs you know and as I was reading this stuff I came across a, an advertisement it was for a young woman and uh, it was actually in a New England paper 
you know. Mm-hmm. So this is in the 1700s, and it, it was for young women for sale. And, you know, these things were very common. People were commodities, so it was like a, putting a used car ad. You put an ad in the paper, you were selling somebody. And she was for sale, and the end of the ad is what prompted the song. It was she has with her a nine-month-old baby who was at the purchaser's option. These are the words in the ad, and it just made me think about what this young woman's life was like. You know, how do you get up in the morning knowing that nothing is under your control? Your life, your child's life. Like, I have two children, and I just take for granted that I'm going to wake up and have my kids, you know? And for women all over the country, for hundreds of years, that was not their reality. Their reality was, I have to love this child as much as I can until I don't know what's going to happen. You know, I've read stories of women who they had multiple children and they'd come home and one would be gone from the field. And then they'd come home and then another one would be gone. I mean, can you imagine what it takes to live through that? So, I mean, I can't either, really. But this song came out of reading a lot of these stories and sort of just trying to let the voice come out. All right, let's uh, let's hear the song. It's called At the Purchaser's Option. Rhiannon Giddens has picked up the banjo once again and Dirk Powell back on the fiddle playing live here in the Soundcheck studio. Take my body, you can take my bones. 
bones You can take my blood But not my soul at the Purchaser's Option, Rhiannon Giddens singing and playing the banjo, Dirk Powell singing and playing the fiddle. And you're both songwriters. When you're writing original songs like that, are you aware of how deeply you might be delving into a, a folk tradition? The reason I ask right now, Rhiannon, is what you did at the end of the song, repeating the first line of the song, is something you see in a lot of old like British Isles, folk songs, ballads, laments, things like that? Yeah, I mean, I, I find that um, the best thing for me is to just immerse, be immersed in stuff. You know, I've listened to a lot of traditional music and I've read a lot of the stories, and, and then you just see what the song wants to do, and the song wanted to do that, mm. you know. I mean, there's a reason why people do that. Yeah. You know, why they repeat the first line or the first verse, you know, there's definitely an effective <laughs> thing that that does you know and just wanted and that song wanted to do that but it's it's again it's sort of like an intuitive process as opposed to i'm gonna use this device that i've seen in other songs yeah i mean i i think i mean for me i i like to just put everything in the pot you know you you can't make something without something there yeah you know so just <laughs> put it all in the pot and then try not to force it we, we write a lot of stuff together and it's Really, you you have to find the song that is there. Mm-hmm. You're not put, not putting yourself on it. You have to uncover it, you know, and let it flow through. And so, when you guys wrote, for example, "Hey Bebe" together, mm-hmm. was that intended to kind of evoke the sounds of Louisiana of, of Cajun music? That was that the idea going in, or did it, did that is that what the song wanted to be? Uh, that was kind of the idea going in. I mean, the melody arrived that way from listening to those kind of records and feeling that, and then the spirit of it. 
you know, in Louisiana dancing. And actually when we made Freedom Highway, we went dancing a lot and there's the energy had a lot of that, that in it amongst songs like that, that we did, you know, and we definitely intended to bring that spirit forth and it was fun to let that evolve. And then you, you, you get the core of that. And then we added the trumpet and some things like that, just kind of, you know, bringing it in different directions. But yeah, that one kind of started with a place and ended at the same place, just some <laughs> yeah. expansion. Some of them you start somewhere and you go someplace completely somewhere else. Yeah. One of the things that um, that struck me with the song that we just did, talking about the mothers who never know if their children are going to be sold into slavery, we're working on some music about the 1898 massacre in Wilmington, North Carolina, which is a brutal historical thing that people don't know much about. Uh, it was considered the only successful coup d'etat in the history of the United States where they took over the local government. I won't de delve into that completely, but one of the songs that we're working on, one of the women that was connected to somebody in that uh, historical moment was born in 1866, and we just kind of discovered that about her. And one of the things that we've been th I've been thinking about a lot is what it must have been like for the first generation of African-American women to have a child that was not a slave in 1866, the first children born knowing that you weren't gonna come home and they were gonna be sold away. Yeah. I, can't, I cannot imagine the feeling of what that mother must have felt like in 1866. It's, just, it's almost, I can't even process it in my mind after hundreds of years of slavery, all those generations. Yeah. So these are some of the ideas that you're working on right now. Mm -hmm. um, this has been really wonderful having the two of you, Rhiannon Giddens, Dirk Powell here with us in the studio. We'll hear a little of that song, Hey Bebe, to wrap things up. But guys, thank you so much for coming in and playing for us today. Our thank pleasure. Thank you for having us. That soundcheck session came from our archives. You can hear lots more and check out our newly produced remote sessions on our website, newsounds.org. Our technical director is Irene Trudell, our producer, Karen Havlick, and I'm John Schaefer. <laughs>